to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Today we're going to talk about some of the most important issues that we are facing here in America today. These are issues that threaten the future of our country and the life that we know as the American way. Michael Johns will be joining me today, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. After more than 150 days of rioting in Portland, Oregon, you can't believe it, it just goes on and on and nobody stops it. But Governor Kate Brown, who is the governor of Oregon, decided to declare an emergency for the city of Portland. Why? She made it very clear that she was acting only because the Proud Boys had said they were intending to hold a rally in Portland on Saturday. Now, this is amazing because after so many weeks of rioting on and on with so much damage and so much destruction and so much pain, she did nothing. But when the Proud Boys, who are conservatives, decided they were going to hold a counter-demonstration, she declared an emergency. It seems she was okay as long as the rioters were supporting Black Lives Matter. But when a conservative group wanted to counter-demonstrate, that became an emergency. So what happened? When they came, the Proud Boys were orderly, and their worst offenses were parking tickets. But they were not alone. Antifa also showed up. It was the thugs of Antifa and Black Lives Matter who turned the streets into a flaming riot. They burned flags, they threw firecrackers and rocks at police, and the emergency was all brought about by the agents of the left. Antifa, Black Lives Matter, not the Proud Boys. Then also last weekend in Yorba Linda, California, a 40-year-old woman from Long Beach rammed her car into a crowd of pro-Trump supporters who were demonstrating peacefully. Here's what happened. The BLM march was walking down one side of Imperial Highway, and the pro-Trump demonstrators holding signs were on the other side, and about 200 police officers were on the sidelines. The woman from Long Beach drove her car right into the marching Trump supporters. As a result of this horrendous attack, one man suffered two broken legs and a woman was also seriously injured. The whole thing was caught on video. The police eventually surrounded the car and the driver was arrested. Now, she owes her allegiance to Caravan for Justice. Don't you love their warm, fuzzy, sounding names? Caravan for Justice? On their Facebook page before the demonstration, They wrote this, quote, Today is the main event. Help us combat racism. These racists are on full alert. Please do the same. Please be careful. And believe it or not, as of Tuesday morning, her posting was still there and she was still an admin on their Facebook page. The punchline in this story is that she used social media to post her own message. She wrote, I can only pray to go out a martyr like this. A martyr. That tells a whole different story, and I won't get into that today. 
because today I am joined by Michael Johns, who is a frequent guest on this show, and we're going to talk about this some more, but from a different point of view. Michael is an American conservative commentator, political analyst, and writer. He was a speechwriter for President George H.W. Bush and a founder of the Tea Party movement and an analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Within the next few weeks, we're going to be facing some of the most consequential issues of our lifetime. We have an election, a presidential election coming up, and the choice couldn't be clearer. It's like the difference between right and left, up and down. We're going to have to choose between somebody who has proven himself in the Oval Office and has done enormous things for America, and a person who has been in government for 47 years and done virtually nothing, and now is at a point in his life where it looks like his mental capacities are failing. We'll see. But one of the major issues in this upcoming election, and it has raised its ugly head, is the issue of the credibility of the actual votes. And we are facing massive voting fraud from the left. This past week, the team working for Ilhan Omar in Minnesota was found to be harvesting votes from senior citizens, elderly people, who were convinced to turn over blank ballots with their signatures to be filled in by Ilhan Omar's team. Michael, how serious is this issue? Hugely serious. Um, There is an active undertaking in this country to impact the presidential and uh, congressional and local races through voter fraud. Sadly, if you go back through the last few months of coverage, President Trump has correctly uh, tried to warn the country that mail-in ballots have a history of being susceptible to voter fraud. He's exactly right in that allegation, but media coverage of it has been to deny it as unproven. And yet the statistics uh, uh, regarding it, the examples of it are undeniable. Um, The more you move voting out of polling places where people physically show up and into uh, form completion and mailing where there is less direct connectivity and vastly more room for fraud and manipulation, the more prone you are to both fraud and human error. Uh, both and, and frankly, while one is malicious and the other might not be, they both have the same result of undermining our democratic political system. Statistically, this is the number I would like to see media coverage on, but you never hear this. Over the last four elections, these, this is regarding mail-in ballots and, and, and how they function. Last four elections, 2.7 million mail-in ballots were misdelivered. I mean, they were sent to a location to an individual that did not reside there, that could have been completed by whoever was there, and 1.3 million were rejected. Now, if you go back and look at the 2016 race, which President Trump won with a considerable electoral college victory, but if you dive into the popular vote and you look at... Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. If you had, I think the number is roughly 80,000 votes go the other way, that would have swung this election and we'd be talking about President Clinton. So it's an extraordinary problem. And it's now 
not really a hypothetical problem as it was uh, when we were, I think, discussing this over the last year, anticipating that there would be some mail-in ballots. This is now a present tense problem with several states in the country already having initiated mail-in ballots in their in these states for the election. One of the things that we have heard being discussed is whether any of this activity is actionable. The president referred to something that I had already seen reported, which was that three trays of mail-in ballots were found in a ditch. A tray could hold hundreds of envelopes, and these trays were full of ballots. In the situation with Elon Omar's team, one of the most difficult things for people who are worried about this is that there is no way to really prove that a crime was committed by someone because when you find these these ballots for example in a in a ditch maybe a few thousand of them there's no perpetrator to pin the crime on what we do need to to examine is whether there is any legal action that can be taken to stop this and the answer has always been well we have no proof well today we have proof because the man who was harvesting these ballots from the senior living centers decided to take a selfie and he was going on about how he had collected these ballots how he had filled up his car he said my car is full i have over 300 ballots with me right now and all of a sudden what this does is an admission of guilt it is proof that this kind of malfeasance is taking place and then the question is, can we prove it and can we take it to court? And if that happens, then it starts to reflect back on the actual congressperson who is Ilhan Omar, and she is going to be under much greater scrutiny than she has been, and it's about time as far as I'm concerned. So there is this question of legality, Michael, and this is something that I think is going to becoming more front and center as we move forward. Well, I am f- I'm familiar with the Ilhan Omar um, case. That's a, a Project Veritas investigation, and I believe it's already under criminal investigation, which sounds great and encouraging, but the reality is unless you're really like catching someone in the act of voter fraud, it's often very difficult to prosecute these cases And the issue is that when you have a candidate who wins a race considerably and and believes that they should have won and and maybe a candidate who believes they should have lost, very rarely is there sort of a post-election assessment. You can go back and recount ballots, but it's very tough to rewind the tape and look at how these things were actually completed. I will tell you that there's been over a thousand criminal convictions of voter fraud in this country. And that might not sound like a lot, but in many of these cases, these were individuals that were affecting hundreds of votes. In Philadelphia, you have a former congressman who's just convicted of staffing ballot boxes, bribing elected officials, falsifying records, obstructing justice, voting multiple times in federal elections. Democrat ward official in Philadelphia 
also was involved in this. It just entered a plea agreement for fraudulently stuffing ballot boxes. He, this guy stood in a booth and literally voted repetitiously. On the mail-ins in Pennsylvania already, there's been a case of uh, ballots that were found and altered. They've been opened and manipulated. West Virginia, California, Illinois, New Jersey is kind of instructive in the sense that they had a uh, mail-in election and had, in Patterson, New Jersey, four residents charged with criminal election fraud. And that included a councilman and a, and a uh, councilman-elect, who I assume is no longer a councilman-elect. One in five of those votes in uh, Patterson were thrown out as being technically incorrect. And you might say, well, that's one city in New Jersey, but you look at New York State and their uh, numbers, they also had about one in five, 20% of their mail-in ballots tossed out. This is really not the way to conduct an election. We warned about it. President Trump warned about it. You know, when you look at the at states that tried to enact this on a state level, Nevada is a good example. Every one of them has been taken to court where the burden of proof has been on showing that they're prone to a problem that, um, you know, hasn't occurred yet, but historically in the rearview mirror head has almost always occurred. And so the big picture issue here is that we're going to have an election that no one really knows the outcome of as of today. I think there's every reason to believe that it's going to be a close election. And I think there's every reason to believe that there's going to be even maybe more so than 2000 with ballots that are contested in various states. One of the reasons that I think President Trump and the Trump campaign are legitimately and uh, correctly concerned about the delays that are being given these states to count the votes is it's almost providing a recipe for the Biden camp to look at states where they need to pick up votes to win the state and to win the electoral college votes in those states. And then to just basically go to court and start making allegations and, and claims and seeing what they can get done. This is something that we are going to have to deal with in a very serious way. We haven't done it yet, and it's gotten gone from bad to worse. We've seen this building over decades. The most important thing I think that we have to face right now is the fact that we may not know who the president is. We won't know it on November 3rd. We're not likely to know it a week later or 10 days later or a month later. It could be a long time before this is resolved. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that President Trump was so eager to nominate a Supreme Court justice prior to the election process so that there would be a nine-judge court to review whatever comes down the road uh, regarding this election. And it's a very serious problem. You really can't go into this election uh, without with a four to four uh, court, because whatever the outcome, appeals will be filed and those appeals go to the Supreme Court, which in turn decides whether or not they uh, will be heard. In the cases with a presidential um, election, I think there's almost a uh, widespread sense of obligation to hear those cases. So it's entirely probable, I think, that we will have Supreme Court hearing that has to be all resolved by January 20th or the 20th Amendment kicks in, in which Congress decides the president of the United States. While this is resolved, Congress has already passed statutes 
have already delegated the Speaker of the House of Representatives to serve as the interim president in such a hypothetical. I guess this is something that we're just going to have to wait and see what happens, but it's it's troubling at best and deeply disturbing. The possibility of an election whose results are disputed and entangled in legal challenges is real and even likely to happen, but it is, I think, the worst possible outcome. The idea of Nancy Pelosi in the Oval Office, even temporarily, is downright terrifying. She has shown us over and over again that her concerns lie with her politics, her power, and her wealthy lifestyle. The welfare of the American people does not seem to be on her agenda. Well, after the break, we are going to talk about something a little bit different but not unconnected. We're talking about what's going on in our cities and how it relates to the election that's coming up. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Before the break, we were talking about the riots in Portland, Oregon, and the mayor who refused to take action against the rioters, even though those riots have been going on for months and the destruction is devastating. Michael, does any of this surprise you? I think it did at first. No longer does it. I think there's. I think it's pretty clear that we have individuals in positions of authority, some of whom were even elected by the people to serve the people who took oaths of office and just have absolutely no regard for the constitution for the rule of law for the property of their cities or even for the lives of the people they govern and have commenced a uh, unbelievably destructive i don't call it a street revolution really i think that's kind of how they would describe it Um, there's no real articulated policy agenda here And we have, you know, over 15 or so individuals who have been killed under various circumstances in in these um, riots and well over a billion dollars now of property damage. One of the creative, I think, creative ideas, uh, which I get every once in a while, is that these corporations, publicly traded corporations, that very stupidly and in a very damaging way, put in millions of dollars into this organization should have some sense of responsibility for reimbursing those whose property was damaged by the organization they supported. 
So Amazon, I believe, put in $10 million. Why is there no pressure being put on Amazon both to cease supporting this organization and further to assume responsibility that for the unbelievable bad judgment and miscalculation? I personally am, um, I think, intellectually flexible on this, that I'm prepared to accept anyone's misjudgment in believing that BLM had anything to do with blacks or lives uh, or any related causes. This is a Marxist, violent, revolutionary force with a very incoherent anarchist agenda. It's not uh, an African-American organization comprised of varying demographics, mostly young people and and many young people who I think have nothing to lose. I also think importantly that it's been um, intensified by the home restrictions of the pandemic. I think you had a lot of people who were held up for a long time. I'm not making any excuses for this behavior, but I do think it was a contributing factor, which gets to the point of what we were just done discussing is that any city mayor or governor that has allowed these uh, riots to occur with complete disregard to the social distancing guidelines has no credibility in saying that we can't have elections at polling places where probably it could be vastly more controlled and regulated. Sadly, there's just boundless hypocrisy on the left, and, and you pointed out some of it. The subject of Black Lives Matter and their real identification is something that the left really does not want to deal with. They seem to want to think of Black Lives Matter as, of, as soft and fuzzy and uh, very, you know, friendly. Black Lives Matter, what a mm. wonderful theme. But it, it really has very little to do, as you pointed out, Michael, it has very little to do with race. It has very little to do with the ability of our society to come to terms with some of the, our history relating to race and the, the bad treatment of blacks in, in, throughout our history. But we have now a situation where black Americans are in a better situation, or were before the pandemic, in a better situation than they have ever been before. And yet this whole conversation about black lives being more important and having more value than white lives this whole thing about white supremacy, white privilege, and white lives matter being something that you cannot say. Language is being canceled. Our leaders are being canceled because of their race, because they, are, they didn't have the advantage of being black when they were born. This is crazy. This is all kinds of insanity. And we have allowed it to happen. And as you have pointed out it before, and will hopefully keep pointing out, that we are continuing to allow it to happen exactly as you have pointed out by our big corporations funding these movements. Black Lives Matter is not a warm, fuzzy organization. It is a Marxist organization. It is a violent organization. And the, the useful idiots who join this program and join their marches because they think it makes them feel good and because they want to support racial justice, which is fine. I think racial justice is a good thing but not at the expense of other races, which then be, makes it racist. 
So we have uh, a, a, a very convoluted uh, culture right now that is not dealing effectively with any of the real problems that our society is facing. When I looked at this back in May, and I go back and I consider what my initial reaction and commentary was, it, w- it was originally one of being that uh, if the public demand in the streets was to critique and evaluate opportunities to improve law enforcement methodologies and uh, behavior and accountability in the cities, that that was a pretty reasonable uh, issue uh, to take on. But I think it's become months ago, I, I, I concluded, and I think most have, this has nothing to do with that. This is this is now about anarchy. It's about disbanding, defunding police, increasing, not decreasing, violence and unsafe situations in our cities. And, you know, ultimately, I've been around the world and have been in countries that have been going through Marxist revolutions. I've been in countries that were trying to get rid of Marxist regimes, all of them started out pretty similarly to this. Um, They started critiquing and canceling out uh, abuse that they considered to be rooted in a country's history or of historical significance or uh, of meaningful opposition to their own positions. They spoke in very benign ways about the improvements they sought in those societies. They were violent because they did not either have the opportunity or wish to pursue the opportunity of pursuing this through peaceful means. And they ultimately betrayed every one of the values and ideals and individuals that they said they would help. I think in the United States, partly because of a little bit of the isolationist nature of of most Americans, we've always felt these are events that could never occur here. And I don't believe that these, this movement is going to be successful ultimately. Some do. Uh, I don't. I, I believe it, it ultimately, and I think there's evidence of it already, it's alienating the American people. It's not gaining favor with the American people. Uh, I think the American people look at it much like I did. They saw a very vivid image of um, unjust and unreasonable and excessive force in Minneapolis. Felt the, the public reaction was obviously very ex- excessive and big over that, but that it was somewhat warranted. And then as this has moved on, ultimately they've done just as much, if not more damage than that one individual Minneapolis police officer did. Like I said, there's over 12 people that have been documented to have been killed to date, billion dollars of property damage, destruction of African-American neighborhoods and housing units, people whose lives may never be the same, including African-Americans in these communities because of these actions many of which haven't been propelled by African-Americans. They've been propelled by young, white, Marxist-leaning individuals. It's ridiculous, however, unacceptable completely, that the mayors of these cities, the governors of these states, have not upheld their functional responsibility of restoring safety and security to these streets. That's what's absolutely unacceptable. And in essence, they've become complicit, complicit co-conspirators in these efforts. So that's what's created, I think, both the prolonged nature of this, the magnitude of its damage. And I think it also presents what's the most complicated question about what next, like what, what is the next move? 
the president's been understandably publicly critical of it, has utilized some but not nearly all the federal resources available to it, is reluctant probably to do that. It's been correct in calling on these mayors to, to do their basically do their job. And uh, they clearly, you know, even up to now are, are not doing that. And that just create. And by the way, once it becomes apparent to these anarchists that this behavior is going to be tolerated, permitted, even encouraged by some of these public officials, including Kamala Harris, who's publicly encouraged it, it snowballs. I mean, at that point, there's like what's to lose. I mean, individuals just sort of go out and they almost feel like they're, they actually have a righteous cause here and destroying other people's pro- property and hurting other people physically. It's the way democratic civil society unravels exactly with what we're witnessing right now. That's a really important point, Michael. This is exactly what we're witnessing, and we've seen it before. We saw it, for example, in Germany in the 1930s as a democratic society gave over its people power to the Nazis who took over and created a tyranny that murdered millions of its own citizens. We saw it in Venezuela, which was a thriving country and one of the wealthiest, maybe the wealthiest in South America, until it was taken over by Cesar Chavez, who brought socialism to the country and systematically destroyed it. Now, the people who were the middle class are scrounging for their food in the garbage. This is what we're seeing now here. And if it is not stopped, we will continue to see it devolve until we have lost everything that we have cherished since the founding fathers created this great experiment. What's important is we had to this November 3 election is to understand that the two biggest crises that this country is currently confronting, the pandemic and the street riots, have absolutely nothing to do, nothing to do with President Trump. Um, This this pandemic originated in China and got here somehow. I'm sure we're going to hear all the details at some point. Um, And and that's being very closely analyzed by American intelligence and um, agencies and um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll learn the details of it, but there's no serious uh, challenge to the fact that this originated in China, almost certainly in Wuhan, and was brought here. The president responded very swiftly with the travel restrictions and has limited the damage. I mean, you look at 200,000 dead and say that's an extraordinary number, but remember back in March, they were looking at projections that talked about 2 million dead. And then as far as the street violence goes, again, Donald Trump wasn't running the city of Minneapolis when this Floyd incident occurred. Democrats were pro-Biden Democrats and the city council that oversaw the law enforcement. And it was one example the fire, uh, uh, that was that was horrible. And if you're going to hold anyone accountable for it, why would you not hold them accountable for it? They're the ones who had the direct managerial oversight over that law enforcement agency. But the broader point, and I think to put it in a large macro sense, is that the thesis that we have systemic racism in the use of lethal force against unarmed African-Americans in this country, that that we have law enforcement that is just randomly going around killing people because of the color of their skin, is an absolute lie. And it's documentably untrue by the statistics that fortunately we keep on these incidents. 
Last year, there were 375 million interactions between law enforcement and American citizens. That's over one per person, an incredible number. Of the 375 million interactions, 19 unarmed whites were killed and nine unarmed blacks were killed. So as a percentage of the total 375 million, the chances of being killed if you are unarmed by a law enforcement official is practically zero. And the numbers do not suggest, in fact, they suggest just the opposite, that there's any element of um, racism behind the use of lethal force. Now, all of that said, is there any racism in any component of law enforcement? Are people possibly pulled over because of the color of their skin? Are their cars randomly searched for their Fourth Amendment rights possibly more likely to be violated? I've spent enough time, I think, in major cities in this country to say that that's the more reasonable position to hold and to evaluate. And there's reasons behind that that aren't always racism or they could be racism. But the idea that black people are being mowed down by law enforcement in this country because they're black is documentably false. And here's the biggest problem. You put a lot of the burden on this on the left and definitely they have facilitated it and somehow, I guess, come to the conclusion that it's politically beneficial to them. I don't think it will be. But there's also a problem on our side because we're not seeing conservatives, the Republican Party, members of Congress stand up. I think the first and foremost obligation of any public servant, really from a mayor to a governor to a state representative, a state senator, member of Congress, president, when you face this magnitude of street anarchy and damage is to call for it publicly to end and stop. And I think if you're looking at this election in November, you have to come to this one big conclusion. We have one candidate in President Trump who has called for it to end, who has properly labeled it damaging and, and anarchist. And we have Biden, who basically has very had, had very little to say about it, and his vice presidential running mate, who actually has been supporting and endorsing funds that are bailing out these violent people and bailing out other people unrelated to this, including people who've been charged with domestic abuse. It's an incredible degree of anarchist lawlessness that any civil society needs to end. And we, I just don't, I cannot see rewarding the party that was behind both the Floyd incident and the violent response that's done so much damage being rewarded politically by that incident or being rewarded because of the coronavirus. As you and I, I think it's spoken about previously, I mean, there's no zero zip reason to believe that Joe Biden would have managed this any better than President Trump and plenty of reason to believe he wouldn't have because he opposed the travel ban, which means he would have allowed infected individuals to continue to come into this country way past January 31 when President Trump ended it. And then you look at the swine flu management of the Obama-Biden administration, which was a vastly less threatening virus, but completely poorly managed. They never came up with the vaccine uh, uh, quantities that, that and dose, dosage levels that they promised, and they were practically never held account, publicly accountable for it. Uh, this is the biggest problem in the country. It's time for conservatives to stand up and speak truth and stop being intimidated by a culture that is running away from the principles of this country and from civility. You have brought us to a, um, a very good point because 
The next segment of this show is going to be all about the actual debate that took place on Tuesday night that gave us a very good look at the two candidates and what they would do to make this country better and stronger. So stay tuned because we'll be right back and we're going to talk about all of that. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now, Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. For a long time, we have been talking about the election of a lifetime, and it's almost here. And this week, we had the opportunity, finally, to see the first of three debates between President Donald Trump and former President Joe Biden. It was a three-ring circus. Moderator Chris Wallace had a hard time keeping the two candidates from taking over the discussion at his expense. The president was the most aggressive, interrupting both Biden and Wallace continually. Biden came in a close second, and he was as rude as he possibly could be to the president. They covered a lot of territory, And that is what we're going to talk about next. The debate was held at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and it was full of surprises. I didn't know what to expect, and I was astonished by the chaos that went on in the course of this debate. This one was very interesting. Michael, what was your first reaction to what happened on Tuesday night? Well... Uh, it was clearly immensely combative uh, with both with both candidates. Uh, you can tell that there is a a sense of mission that they both have. I honestly believe that they both feel the other candidate is in some way unsuitable for the job, which is kind of new. Uh, I don't remember the last time I actually saw that. These are usually more just about policy differences. I think there was a personal dimension to this. You know, I was 
sort of happy was at the Cleveland Clinic. I think if anyone there had sort of just keeled over with a heart issue, it's probably the best heart facility in the uh, world to my knowledge. So maybe there's <laughs> some strategic <laughs> uh, thinking behind all of that. But I will say this. I believe that critics and, and cynics uh, may look at it and say that Trump was a little overly aggressive. And I have to point out that strategically, he absolutely needed to be uh, the way he was. There were key core issues that needed to come out in this debate that are crucial to the country and crucial to an understanding of Biden that it appears to me were not on the plan list of questions. And one of those is the deepening level of extraordinary possible criminal corruption of Biden Incorporated, basically, the Biden family and how this power was leveraged throughout the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration for the benefit of, of millions upon millions of dollars from very, very unsavory sources like the Communist Party of China, uh, Russian oligarchs, and a, and a corrupt uh, uh, energy company in Ukraine. And Trump, I think, was doing did the right thing in interjecting to get that mentioned. Uh, which is why it's frustrating that he had that he and others from that administration were at the high levels making these decisions that kicked off much of that probe. That some of the major core issues confronting the country were clearly covered. Uh, the pandemic was well covered. I did not hear from Joe Biden really any once you, you could see that he had all this rage uh, that he tried to project. I think to inspire other people to have rage about some purported mismanagement of this by President Trump, but he wasn't able to articulate, as far as I could hear, one singular policy thing he would have done differently. The one major thing that that we've discussed that did that President Trump correctly brought up was the fact that he opposed the travel ban um, and, and that more infected individuals would have arrived in the United States had Joe Biden been in, in the Oval Office January 31 as opposed to Trump. So by all metrics, as far as I can tell and indications, this pandemic will be worse under Biden's leadership. I think that's absolutely correct. And and it, he does not want to remember that when Donald Trump imposed the travel ban on China, Joe Biden said he was a racist and xenophobic. I observed tonight was that neither one of them looked really very presidential. No, I, you know, in fact, in fact, uh, I've had this discussion on our Sunday Viewpoint Presents um, show with uh, Malcolm, where I had raised the point with him, and he, I think he was in full agreement, that this idea that somehow Joe Biden is a nice guy is uh, not at all backed up. He's a nice guy when there's no substance involved, and he's got the quintessential political smile and those sort of things. But whenever he appears to be confronted with any aspect of his 47-year record in the swamp that doesn't jive with his own perception of things, he, he quickly loses his temper, easily, easily angered. And I think he has a grossly inflated sense of what he's actually done down there, which is, I guess, easy to happen when you've had two you know, very senior uh, federal governmental roles for nearly half a century. But the remarkable aspect is not that, but the fact that in that nearly half a century, there is no real singular major notable accomplishment 
that anyone can get too excited about that he's had his fingerprints on. And just the opposite, most of the assessments of his career, including by his peers, uh, like Robert Gates, Secretary of Defense in the Obama mm-hmm. administration, who said he, he'd, he'd had every major foreign policy and national security issue wrong over the last 40 years. I mean, these are <laughs> devastating comments, and they're particularly devastating when they're leveled at you by people in your own administration. I thought his elaboration on Obamacare just, it's doubling down on a broken system. Obamacare is failing. It's almost certainly unconstitutional. And and when it had the mandate, particularly unconstitutional, enforcing Americans to purchase a product they may not want. So that's a broken plan. It's wrong to say that Trump has, has doesn't have a health care plan. He's done an extraordinary number of things with drug prices, with expanding access to health care in rural areas. And to go about it is exactly the way President Trump's going about it, is that you, you stop thinking about health insurance as exclusively a private sector employment benefit. It, hopefully it remains that. But in those cases where it's not, you offer the opportunity to get into insurance plans through any other group that can be identified. One of the genius things that I think Trump is doing right now is he's not approaching healthcare as a system. He's approaching the pieces of healthcare as a, a way of solving specific problems, not with a whole program, but with individual pieces of a program that address specific problems. And I think that the genius in that is that it solves the problems. If you have a big piece like Obamacare, it makes more problems than it solves. They were clearly biting off more than they could chew. The most fundamental aspects of it didn't work. All of the promises related to Obamacare proved to be lies. So all of these effects that came out of the implementation of Obamacare that were negative and that, you, that any sensible American would look at its negative, like how costly it was, like how few options there were, were all part really of the strategic design to, to make the political case for the next step. And that next step, which is still the design of today's modern Democrat Party, including that of Joe Biden, is ultimately a single-payer healthcare system controlled from Washington by bureaucrats, which is never successful, which always leads to diminished access to healthcare, diminished quality of care, higher costs in the management of the care, and uh, decreased numbers of providers that are actually available. One of the things about this debate that I haven't seen in other debates is that it was less civilized. The two candidates kept interrupting each other, Trump more than than Biden, but Biden did his share. And in fact, he told the president to shut up. I don't know that you do that to a president of the United States, but he did. And it was, it was um, I thought, out of play. I thought they were both unpresidential. Biden because of his rudeness and Trump because he kept interrupting. And he, he felt he had to, but it almost seemed like bullying. Michael, what do you think about this? This is a, this is a presidential debate, and yet they didn't seem very presidential somehow. 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do with this format and uh, the fact that, firstly, I think Biden was, as you correctly say, uh, incredibly rude with his remarks. But because I think he has a less intimidating presence, it may not have been as picked up as easily as President Trump came across as very authoritative, uh, as as very energetic, as very uh, forceful. And... I think the response to anyone who looks at that and says, well, maybe he should have been less of those things is to point out that you're putting a lot of power into a moderator to come up with questions that ostensibly represent the concerns of the American people. And I just, there were major gaps in issues that simply were not covered. So President Trump, to his credit, got out the ones that I mentioned on, on the Hunter Biden scandal, now in the hands of the Department of Justice, referred by Senator Paul and, and Obama, Obamagate and Biden's possible role in that. I think he point, pointed out a lot of the deficiencies of, the, of Biden's lack of accomplishment, both as vice president and as a senator. Uh, and the fact that, you know, all these great ideas that he has, I mean, basically, like, where have they been the last 47 years? That becomes a very difficult question, I think, for Biden. Look at the two major issues confronting the country, I think, importantly, on the pandemic and on the street violence, which have defined 2020. From January 2017 until January uh, of 2020, those three years, even though there were, there were battles, there were struggles, Trump was putting up victory after victory. The economy was moving in an almost unprecedentedly positive direction. The story that he had to tell as recently as January of this year was it's just almost impossible to beat. I don't care who they put up against him. His his reelection was, I think, guaranteed. Now, uh, in the you know, with the voters thinking in the present tense, with uncertainties about the pandemic and street violence, you get around to this question of these are bothersome things. Human instinct is to blame uh, someone, anyone, for these problems that whether or not they're preventable or not. In both of these cases, it just so happens that they're both hugely preventable. The Communist Party of China should have and could have constrained the, the, the virus. I think the president kind of got that point across with the limited time he had. That's important to drive home. Clearly, they misled the World Health Organization and the world. I, I, that was one observation I had. The masks keep coming up as if somehow... Uh, President Trump has not listened to this, what they call the science on masks. Well, let's talk about the science. The CDC and the World Health Organization were actually recommending against the use of masks yes, in those were. first few months of the pandemic because they were concerned that there were not going to be a sufficient number available for healthcare workers. You know, as recently as like late spring, they were still advising not to be wearing masks. So the, the rebuttal that I, I felt like, oh, I wish he had said that, you know, sometimes you, you have those moments in these debates, was when Wallace raised that he was not listening to the science. The, the logical rebuttal was, what do you mean? The science on masks was not settled until the late spring when the CDC and the World Health Organization both came around to changing their position on it. Not only did the CDC not give the correct information on the masks, but on every issue, they were inconsistent. They said one thing, and then they contradicted themselves and said something else. We have a lot of two issues on the minds of the American people that they feel uncomfortable about. One is the pandemic. That is the fault of communist China. 
if you want to resolve this issue going forward, you need to recognize that communist China, uh, at least of 2020, is not the China of 1980. They are up to incredibly malicious things almost in almost every respect around the world. You need the president, the candidate, who's going to be tougher and more glued into that reality. That is so obviously Donald Trump, who, to his great credit, has been talking realistically about the China threat back for decades before he even entered American politics. Biden, conversely, as recently as this summer, has been saying we have nothing to worry about in China, even saying that the growth of China is in our interest. It's it's no longer in our interest, if it ever was. You get finally to the issue of the Marxist anarchist street violence that's going on. And I thought that might have been maybe if you were really paying attention, the singular most important part of that debate, because President Trump asked a great question directly to Biden saying, you just got done bragging that you're running the Democrat Party. Why have you not called these Democrat mayors in Portland and Seattle and told them to employ law enforcement and bring a peaceful end to all of this violence, which is a very reasonable request. Uh, Biden's response was, well, because I'm not in a position of authority. But, you know, leadership, true leaders don't need positional authority to exercise leadership. This guy's talking to political figures all over the country every day for his own selfish political aspirations. There's nothing precluding him from making those calls and asking them as the, as the Democrat nominee for president to put an end to this violence that is, how, that is hurting almost everyone involved and helping no one and helping no cause. And for him to dodge that, to me, suggests an individual who in, in the deepest part of his soul lacks the real, true type of leadership that you want to see in a president. So even if we say, look, those first three years, which were almost exclusively successful for President Trump, sadly are forgotten by the voters, if that's true, and I hope it's not, but if it is true, even on these two issues, the conclusion is Trump is the solution on both of these. Biden is more of the problem. Biden is going to cuddle with China, not confront them, not hold them accountable for this uh, and the ma- and the magnitude of, of vast economic and human damage they've done around the world. And he's not and he's and he's not going to confront uh, the mayors that have been supported by these far left uh, foundations and, and elected for that reason or their little street armies that they've put together to um, to conduct acts of basically terror throughout these streets. I I would see both of those issues worsening on the watch of Biden and improving on the watch of Trump. And on that basis, I have never felt more strongly about any race that I've seen that this country needs to reelect President Trump and hopefully give him a Senate and House he can work with to get sensible legislation passed to the American people. This hour has gone by very fast, and we have run out of time. Michael, I thank you very, very much for joining me on this show. This this conversation has been extremely interesting. So thank you again. 
I uh, look forward to having you back whenever you're in the neighborhood. I look forward to it, Alana. Tell us quickly the name of your show. Viewpoint presents with Malcolm and Michael Johns, 11 a.m. Sunday, with a replay at, I believe, 7 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, uh, and then on podcast. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. You've been listening to the News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report. <laughs>